Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we plotted out some episodes, and Dominaria United is rapidly coming to a close. Brothers War previews have already started, and I am bummed about it. it. I mean, so here's the thing that I think is great. This is actually a perfect life cycle, I think. Like leaving us wanting to do a little more content? Right. Like, I don't feel like we've exhausted the possibilities. I don't feel like we're having to, like, scrape the bottom of the barrel. The problem is, is that this is such a unique experience of, like, having a set that feels deep enough to do that and not having enough time for it. Whereas, like, you know, we've, yeah, I think the the fall of Zendikar Rising was certainly an anomaly of, like, that was, I think, four months almost (laughs) of having a set. But it it is, a you know, I do feel a little nervous of, like, is Brothers War going to stand up to this? Because it's... Probably not, just like in terms of, you know, probability, right? Uh, I just don't think that a lot of sets can stand up to how much there is to talk about for Dominaria United. So I think there's a positive aspect to look at it. But yeah, there's also definitely a, a negative as well. Yeah, I'm feeling a little wistful. Yeah, I, I hear that for sure. So, you know, we were sort of mapping out. I think that means that two weeks from now, we'll be doing our 50 Takes episode to gear up for looking at previews and then Brothers War Crash Course. So I thought... For this week, we're kind of going to do a grab bag. We had a lot of different ideas floating around, and I kind of just wanted to try and jam them all as much as possible into one episode. So that's what we're going to do today. Put them out in the world as quickly as we can. Yeah, but not quite like a 50 takes, right? I was like, is this just going to feel like another 50 takes episode? But I think we've got some specific topics that are less like hot takey or here's the takeaway, but more just like we haven't actually touched on this. We focused a lot on drafting and pick orders and how those change and how that's different. We haven't talked as much about archetypes necessarily or mana bases necessarily, or, you know, we've talked about specific cards, but in the context of certain decks. So anyway, I think this will give us an opportunity again to just have a bunch of conversations about the format. Absolutely. So before we get into the meat of this episode, we have a few housekeeping things to take care of. First things first is the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, as where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. And we should start just shouting out, I think, our website, lordsoflimited.com. That's where you can go to give back to the show via the Patreon. That's when Ben's going to talk about TCG Player in just a second. That's probably the best way to get to the TCG Player link. We've got our tier list up there where Ben tirelessly poured over each and every card. Ben, can people expect that? From tier lists in the future? Have you set yourself up for failure in this way? I don't know if people can expect (laughs) that in the future. That was a project and I was very passionate about this format. So I think it depends on how Brothers War hits me. If it's a great set, I think you can expect that for sets that are this complex in the future. But... Streets of New Capenas, no chance I am doing that. I, th- I think that's that's fair. I think th- one of the things that you and I, I think, key into a lot for sets is we have our sort of stock of, you know, half a dozen episode types that we can do per set. But when some, when, a, when a gem like Dominaria United comes along and presents itself with a lot of interesting puzzles or unique puzzles, try and cater the content towards that. And I think that's part of, you know, the, the tier list with all of the notes on each specific card. But you can find that on our website. You can find, of course, all of our episodes on our website. And you can find the Lords of Limited MTG Digest weekly newsletter sign up on our website as well. But back to the Patreon page, just a great place to get back to the show. You get a lot of sweet perks depending on which uh, reward tier you choose to sign up for. Obviously, access to the Discord, which we shout out each and every week as fantastic 24-7 limited tech support. So you move up the rankings, you get access to our show notes, access to the episode a day in advance ad-free, and of course, all the way up to the tippy-tippy top of the reward tiers is monthly coaching sessions with either me or Ben. So a lot of sweet stuff over there. And of course, we want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we are welcoming Austin, Philip, Dan, Mark, Daniel, Wolf Champion, and PJ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Good, strong name, Wolf Champion. I agree. Appreciate you all. Thank you very much. Show is also brought to you now by TCG Player, tcgplayer.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related. They've got TCG Player plus all of Channel Fireball inside them now. So we talked a lot last week about the TCG Player link, which is how you can support the show and let TCG Player know that we you know, sent you over to their website. So we have a link. And to get to that link, the best way to do this is to go to lordsoflimited.com, click on the support tab, and then click on the TCG Player link. And what that's going to do is it's going to take you to the TCG Player homepage, 
But then at the top, it's going to have some weird URL that says <laughs> equals Lords of Limited at the top of it or something like that. And basically what that's going to do on their end is track you know, everything you do so that they can report to us, hey, someone went through your link and bought this box of Dominaria United. And we can say, awesome, sweet. We're glad that we sent that person over to you. So it's going to give them a lot of data about the folks that we send over there. And they're going to use that to, you know, have conversations with us about feedback for sponsoring the show. So we really appreciate anything you do uh, to help out the podcast. And we really want to let them know that we can send folks over there. So again, it's going to lordsoflimited.com, clicking the support tab, and that's going to take you to the TCG player homepage. CFB subscriptions have ended. So if you were on CFB Pro and you want to still have access to that content, you're going to need to re-up as a TCG player subscriber. And currently those are available to US customers only. Um, we found that out via the Discord because a couple people had tried to do this. They're definitely hoping to be more inclusive down the road with that. So be on the lookout and rest assured we will let non-US customers know as soon as that is an option. So again, for anything you need magic related, whether that's sealed product or you want to get on a TCG player subscription to still have access to the CFB Pro articles, please go to the Lowell website, click support and click the TCG player link. All right, Ben, I had a really fun draft here that I think I think we do want to keep doing some roundtables just because they're great fodder for discussion. So are you ready to take a seat? Yes. Love this draft. <laughs> All right. So pack one, pick one. I think the following cards are in contention. There is a tribute to Urborg. That's the one on a black instant. Target creature gets minus two, minus two until end of turn. If it was kicked for one in a blue, it gets an additional minus one, minus one until end of turn for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. There's lightning strike, one in a red instant, deal three to any target. I guess could shout out Radiant Grove as a green, white tap land if you really wanted to go hard in the uh, domain paint. And then moving on to to the uncommons, I think there's really one in consideration for me, which is Baird, Argivian Recruiter, Red White for the 2-2 at the beginning of your end step. If you control a creature with power greater than its base power, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token. And unfortunately, our rare, as I think honestly often they are in this format, it's kind of a dud. Uh, chaotic Transformation is the 5 in red sorcery, exile up to one target artifact creature enchantment planeswalker and land and then each permanent exiled they just like randomly get to see if they win the lottery and flip cards until they reveal permanent types that match that and put that into play instead strictly unplayable i would say yes completely agree so i think of those three cards you mentioned i would put them in the order of tribute to urborg one Lightning Strike 2, Baird 3 for myself. And honestly, at the start of the format, if you had told me I'd be taking Tribute over Lightning Strike, pack one, pick one, I would have told you you were insane, which is just cool that, you know, card evaluation shift and raw card power doesn't always matter. You know, obviously, as we love draft, that's one of the reasons why context is kind of king. But I think Tribute to Urborg leaves you the most flexible down the road in relation to its raw power as well. Like Lightning Strike and Baird might both be better cards intrinsically. And I don't, I don't even know that that's necessarily true, but Tribute certainly goes into a wider variety of decks than both of those cards. And that's something I value a lot. Pack one, pick one. Yeah, I think that's true as well. And as I was looking at this pack, I was sort of surprised that I came to that same conclusion in real time of like, man, if I'm going to take one of these common removal spells, I think it's actually tribute because, and it took me a long time to get on board with tribute. And I think this will tie into one of the categories we'll be chatting about a little later is like drafting with the decks in mind or like drafting with the, the decks you think you'll end up in, in mind. And so many of the black decks I was ending up in, in weeks one and two were black, white. And I don't think tribute to Urborg is very good in black, white. And so I had a lot of folks in chat, you know, shouting out that card in packs or like wondering why I wasn't taking it or why I wasn't putting it in the deck at the end. And I was like, Black White just has access to so much removal and your creature count is often very high. And I just don't think that you want to be if you're going to be splashing in Black White, it's almost certainly for red, not blue. But I agree. I'm really I've really come around to tribute as super duper strong. I love blue black as an archetype. I love, you know, being able to splash it pretty easily if you're in a green black domain base as well. So I think it does leave you open to a lot more archetypes um, or possibilities than a card like lightning strike. Maybe not a lot more. Maybe that's an, an exaggeration, but certainly more in my mind. Yeah, for sure. But I don't like removal, Ben. We talk about <laughs> removal all the time as being overrated, though I don't think it is in this format. Um, but I just like, I, you know, I like me a build around. I like me a card. I think that's just like why I like companions in cube. I just like a card that's like, here's a sort of mini stipulation on your draft. And so I took Baradar Givian Recruiter here. Just playing in hard mode. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's fun. That's why. That's how I like to play Magic. I don't. I can't. I don't know what to tell you. Well, while you all you folks are figuring out the best decks, I'm just here derping around with random legendary uncommons. Can I raise one more point here in favor of tribute to Urborg? Yeah. So I think one card we didn't shout out in the uncommons, Monstrous War Leech is here. Three and a black star star kicker blue when ETBs goes kick to mill four and its power and toughness are equal to the highest mana value among cards in your graveyard. That is not in consideration. Pack one, pick one. I agree. But it's something you could theoretically wheel. And I think starting with tribute, knowing you might wheel Monstrous War Leech is also very appealing to me. I'm really glad that you brought up that point, because one of the things that I think about in cube a lot is in, in pack one pick one when there isn't like a clear slam dunk oh this is like one of the top 20 cards in the cube or whatever i try and think about what can wheel so if i take this card can anything wheel for me out of this pack whether it's a land or you know a, a nice you know niche kind of card for the archetype i'm gearing up towards and i think that because dominaria united is similar to cube that this is definitely something to think about and it's something i've tracked before as well when i'm like taking a card i'm like This doesn't really look to be anything I can wheel out of this pack. So I do like the idea of that bumping up tribute as well as like tribute is is good. And it's not crazy to think that War Leech can wheel out of this pack. Right, for sure. Yeah. So I landed on Baird. Moving on to pack one, pick two. A lot less exciting of a pack, I think. Um, There's a Flowstone Kavu in the pack that I just want to shout out a little bit. That's the tuna red two, three with Menace. Pay a red uh, to give it plus one, minus one until end of turn. This is a very cheap way to consistently trigger Baird, I have found in these kinds of decks. Um, It's not a card I'm looking to pack one, pick two. That's almost a card that I'm hoping to wheel, um, but I have been consistently impressed with Kavu in general and and certainly with Baird. It's kind of a turd once it's on the battlefield from your opponents. Like, it's kind of like, ugh. That card's yeah. gonna be annoying. Because, <laughs> like, you're like, what am I supposed to... Like, if you have a lightning strike or a tribute, great. If you can just, like, one for one with it with removal, great. But if you have to, like, engage with it in combat on blocks, I'm just... I'm already like the face. If you could see my face right now, it's like (laughs) squinting and like kind of prepared to get blown out and just like fingers crossed. I don't really want to look at the battlefield type deal. Like that's how I feel about Kavu. I think it's definitely an overperformer from what it looks like. Well, and the worst is when your opponent's playing in red black. Maybe they've got some Knight of Dust shadows and they've got the Kavu and then you're terrified of the the one black gets yeah. death touch and indestructible trick that is a house in red black mm-hmm. um there's also banalish sleeper i think a big uh, mover up for us over the past few weeks one and a white for the three one and it has kicker for a black and if it was kicked each player sacrifices a creature and we've got three really strong uncommons i think strength of the coalition green for an instant target creature gets plus two plus two until end of turn and if it's kicked for two and a white you put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control there's Battlewing Mystic, one in a blue for a 2-1 with flying. And when I enter the battlefield, if it was kicked for a red, you discard your hand, then draw two cards. And boy, howdy, Ben, there's another Baird Argivian recruiter. Yeah, I mean, starting with Baird, you're slamming Baird here, right? Yes, that feels great. If you had taken Tribute, yeah, and this will be the, the end of that thought exercise, but I am curious, if you had taken Tribute, what would you take here? I would take Battlewing Mystic, I think. You know, just to see, I think Battlewing Mystic is the best card in the pack, and then I have Two very good cards that are unlikely to go in the same deck, maybe in a Grixis control shell, but even then you're not maximizing Battling Mystic there. So I think Battling Mystic very much wants to be, as we will talk about later in the episode, a streamlined blue-red, preferably even blue-red aggro card. Yeah, I do think like Battling Mystic for me, and maybe we slightly disagree here, I just think the two mana two on flyer is actually pretty fine in this format. And it's certainly not at its best if you can't kick it, but I would play it in a deck if I couldn't kick it at all, I think. Um, I don't think I would cut it from most blue decks, but I also think it's not difficult to be like, yeah, I've got this early. I can pick up a couple dual lands, even if I don't end up in blue red specifically. For sure. So double Baird in the pile here. We move on to pack one, pick three. And nothing really good in the red-white uh, vicinity. We've got one red card, and that's Yavamaya Steel Crusher, which has enlist, but that's not really what I want to be doing with Baird. And then there's another Banalish Sleeper, but those are your only red and white cards in the pack. In terms of actual good cards in the pack, there's an Essence Scatter, one on a blue for an instant counter-target creature spell. Um, there's a Gibbering Barricade, two and a black for a 2-4 with Defender, and you can pay two and a black, sack a creature, you gain one life and draw a card. Moving on to the Uncommons, there's a Rona, Shouldred's Faithful, though I don't really, f- I feel like that's like, we want to shout that out in the like, the the, <laughs> the the broad scheme of this like, maybe blue-black deck wheeling. But the other card that really jumps out to me as best in the pack is Braid's Frightful Return. 
Two and a black for the Read Ahead Saga. Chapter one, you can sack a creature if you do. Each opponent discards a card. Chapter two, return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. Chapter three, target opponent may sacrifice a non-land, non-token permanent. If they don't, they lose two life and you draw a card. You know, I am pretty happy looking at the saga that this was good because it makes me think back to the crash course. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Well, well, where we both get to be right because I was like, divination's not good. And you were like, if divination's not good, then Braid's Frightful Return cannot be good but turns out right but divination is great and so is braids frightful return <laughs> exactly yeah so uh so what are your thoughts on this pack i am pretty bummed if i have two beards and i'm looking at this pack my the first question that jumps to mind is is two beards good enough that i want to just play red white from here come what may and i think the answer to that is no but it's close right i mean steel crusher is a premium card in red white and very good with beard right is it premium? I have like no, almost no experience drafting red white. So I don't know. I mean, I think you need twos. And I think Steel Crusher and Sleeper are the best twos for red white at common off the top of my head. I don't know that for sure because I'm not looking at all the cards. But I mean, Steel Crusher having synergy with Baird and then Banalish Sleeper just being a three powered two drop is also very important. Okay. All right. So I think, you know, you could consider just sticking with red white here. I think that's a little aggressive given the other cards in the pack, and I would be a little worried about getting cut out of it. But that, I'm also biased because I wouldn't have started this way because I I don't want to make that commitment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I think personally, I would be looking to potentially feel out jumping ship here. And I think I would land on Essence Scatter over Braid's Frightful Return because blue is my comfort zone. But I certainly could see a case for Braid's Frightful Return, maybe get to do some sweet Mardu sacrifice stuff. So who knows? Yeah, I think I, I landed on Braid's here, I think, sort of a flip side for me. One, I think the ceiling on Braid's is higher than Scatter. Two, there's, you know, there's three black cards in this pack, Barricade, Splatter Goblin, and Rona. And then we could also maybe be thinking about that blue-black life, like we saw Monstrous Warleach, and maybe that wheels. That's not crazy. I've seen Rona wheel in packs like this before. Like, I don't think, is something interesting, like, I don't think Rona is like, an insanely good card or anything. But when it goes pick six, it signals to me that blue black might be or is open. And I like that deck a lot, right? I think blue black is a really strong deck in the format. Um, and so I, I don't think it's crazy to see that card go late. So I, I landed on the saga here, but I definitely can see an argument for scatter as well. Pack one, pick four. Well, your only blue card here would be Talus Lookout. There's a bunch of red and white cards here, but none of them are are particularly good. Like uh, the best of the bunch is like Captain's Call, three and a white sorcery, make three one one soldier creature tokens. I don't even really like this card that much in a lot of my white decks. I think it's like fine, but there's plenty to do with the four mana slot. In terms of actual good cards, there's an Urborg repossession, and that's probably the best card in the pack by a significant margin single black sorcery return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand you gain two life and if you kicked it for one and a green you can return another target permanent card from your graveyard to your hand i really like this card like obviously this has been the hotness for weeks now but i specifically like this card when i've got powerful non-creature permanents to get back like a braid's frightful return yes i completely agree urborg repossession is great goes up in value with the power of the sagas you have 100 percent One thing I want to shout out here, because I think this draft is so, so, so interesting. And one of the reasons it's so interesting is because it ties so nicely into everything that we're going to talk about in the episode. I think if you're first picking those Bairds, I think the reason I didn't want to first pick it is because I'm very unlikely, I think, over the course of a draft to end up Mm -hmm. in red, white. And I think I don't know what your feelings are on that for you personally. Have you drafted red, white a lot? Are you likely to end up there? I have not, and I don't think I am, but I'm also not ta- like, you know, Ben, the, the world is is my oyster in this format. <laughs> I, I don't I don't draft just red, white aggro. I draft five color legends. I draft Mardu garbage. I draft, you know, red, white artifacts like, I, you know, it's not like Baird has to go in this red, white aggro shell. But I hear your point is like I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot a little bit by taking Baird pack one pick one, even though it's a pet card of mine. I'm so unlikely to end up in an archetype that takes advantage of it. One of the reasons I like the card is I backdoor into it a lot of the time. But starting with it, I think might be a suboptimal line for me. Well, maybe, but either way, it doesn't really matter. But it's just interesting to think about, right? So one of the things I've tried very hard to do, and I haven't been able to draft as much as I would like the last two weeks, but the drafts I have done, there was a period where I was winning, and then I just kept losing. 
And now I'm back to kind of winning again. And one of the reasons is I've been trying very hard to avoiding putting myself in spots where like start out drafting a deck that I'm uncomfortable with because I'm so likely to end up pivoting off of it anyway because it's so easy to pivot in the format. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I, I really try to avoid spots where I start with more powerful cards that tend to put me in directions I don't want to go. Just as kind of a thought exercise for down the road, when we're going to talk about starting with the end in mind in your drafts. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I, I think one of the things I was thinking was like, oh, I, you know, I like high rolling cards, like sort of, I don't, I don't know if Bear does high risk, high reward, but just sort of cards where it's like, this gives me a direction. And then I trust myself, as I think I do in this draft, to if that direct, I'm not going to force that direction. And I don't, it's interesting to think of what the line would be, you know, the thought exercise we were doing last week of like, okay, if it's not essence scatter, but if what if it's impulse, what if it's Tolarian geyser, what if it's Tolarian terror? It's interesting for me to think about what are the red and white commons that I would take over Braid's Frightful Return. That's very, probably very few red cards in that spot. And probably very few white cards, if I'm being honest. Like, it's probably Argivian Cavalier and Take Up the Shield might be the only two. And then I'm taking Braid's Frightful Return. And if that's the case, if there's so few cards that I'm likely to take, then maybe I'm just better off starting off with the the maybe, I don't know. I don't even know if Tribute to Urborg has a lower ceiling, you know, than Baird. But, you know, those lower ceiling cards, but sort of higher floor and more flexibility. Right. Well, and the other thing I want to point out is if you're starting Baird Baird is a fine start to this draft, just Baird Baird into Yavmaya Steel Crusher into Captain's Call. And because you said, you know, the only cards I'm really excited about are Cavalier and Take Up the Shield. That's one of the reasons it's so hard for me to end up in red white. Yeah, I, I think you have to have some faith. I think you have to be willing to, you know, know that some of the packs are going to be blank for you at commons. And I think it is harder to see. Yeah, this deck's open because red and white might be open right now. But just mm-hmm. a lot of the red commons are very junky. And a lot of the white cards are situational, depending on what you're doing. But I think Steel Crusher Captain's Call is also a very good start to a red white deck, despite the fact that you would have had to pick some suboptimal cards, pack three and pick four, you know? Yeah. And then I'm looking at the next pack and we would have gotten our Argivian Cavalier and then they're probably locked, right? If you take Steel Crusher into call and then see the Cavalier pick five, I think you're locked. Now, given where, I, where I'm at with two Bairds and then the Frightful Return and the Repossession, I think there's some other cards to consider here in pack one, pick five, which is a lot of good black cards. So there's a Geothermal Bog. That's the black red tap land. There's another Repossession. There's a Phyrexian Warhorse, which is certainly the the worst of the bunch here, but a card I want to shout out. We'll chat about later, probably. There's an Eerie Soul Tender, two and a black, three, one, when it ETBs, you mill three, and then you can pay four and a black to exile it from your yard to return another target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. And then in the uncommon slot, there's a Vohar Vidalian Desecrator, blue, black for a one, two, tap it, draw a card, then discard a card. Totally forget this other line of text. If you discarded an instant or sorcery card this way, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. I had uh, had Twitch chat yelling at me the other day of like, you have lethal, you have lethal. And I was like, what? I was like, I'm not attacking with Vohar. <laughs> Stop trying to get me to attack with Vohar. And they're like, no, you can just, if you just discard that instant in your hand. I was like, oh. Uh, and then you pay two, uh, sacrifice it at sorcery speed to cast target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard this turn. If that spell would be put into your graveyard, exile it instead. A great pairing with Urborg Repossession. Yeah. So is your thought process here? I see you selected Vahar, and I don't know that I would be quite that brave to take a blue black card here. I think I would probably lean more Phyrexian Warhorse or Eerie Soul Tender myself. Mm. But I think Vahar is certainly very exciting with Urborg Repossession. Yeah, so I'm a little nervous given the blue-black that we've passed. You know, I'm, I'm certainly conscious of Tribute and uh, War Leech pack one. I'm certainly conscious of Rona last pack or two packs ago or whatever it was. But I just think the upside is so high here of having Vohar, Repossession, and Braids. That is some like near loop-de-loop nonsense that I, I'm, I'm hoping to, to put in my deck. But I think you could just take Soul Tender and be happy. I think... For for my money, I would definitely not take the second repossession here. Yes, I agree. And I think one of the things that Bihar sets you up to do is win the late game war, right? One of the ways you can get in tons of trouble in this format is be a late game deck, but not a good late game deck, because then right. you're in danger of losing to the good aggro decks and also the good late game decks. You know what I mean? Like it's very bad to be kind of in the middle leaning towards the late game in the format, mm-hmm. but not fully committed to just 
value being dumped on the table turn after turn in the late yeah. game, you know? Yeah, so moving on to pack one pick six, in my pile I've got now two Bairds, a Vohar, a Repossession, and a Frightful Return Saga. Um, I don't really know what I was thinking about with this pick, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. In in the pack, there's not really anything that jumps out to me. There's a Blue-Red Tapped Land, that's the Molten Tributary. There's a Shore Up, single blue, instant, uh, untapped target creature, it gets plus one, plus one, and Hexproof until end of turn. There's another Phyrexian Warhorse. There's an Urtai's Scorn, the one blue-blue counterspell that costs blue less if an opponent casts two or more spells this turn. Anything else that jumps out to you from this pack? No, I don't think so. I think personally I would be on Warhorse here. I'd love that card. I am sure when you took Molten Tributary, which is what you selected, you were thinking five color legendary squigglies. I am sure that's what was in your head. I think that is what I was thinking, and it's pretty embarrassing to see that. (laughs) (laughs) Back on pick seven, uh, sort of maybe a glimmer of red-white hope a little bit, but even even more so like a red-white hope with Baird specifically as a 1-1 factory. There's a Hurler Cyclops in the pack that's three red-red for a 5-4 and you can pay one, sack another creature to have it deal one damage to any target. Um, And there's not much that I love in the pack for like blue-black, though there is a negate. Has negate ever been better in a format than it is here? Oh, no chance. Like negate is fully main deckable. And I think it probably took us as a community and me specifically too long to realize like, okay, shore up and take up the shield are so good. Negate is basically shore up and has the benefit of, yeah, so yeah, it's two mana, but has the benefit of like stopping your opponent's two for ones before they resolve, like their espionages or whatever. Yeah, or more specifically, Urborg repossession. Like so many yes. decks are hinged in the late game around resolving Urborg repossession. If you can stick a negate on that, you are winning the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think Hurler Cyclops makes sense for you here, maybe to push down the Baird path. There's nothing exciting for a black, green, blue late game loops deck no and then i think things start to solidify here for us pack one pick eight and pack one pick nine there's a monstrous war leech here pack one pick eight ben and then another one pack one pick nine it wheels baby it wheels and then the information you get from that wheeling is awesome right you know no one else at the table on the first pass through was interested in this so you get a slam two monstrous war leeches and then try to build around that in the future, which means Eerie Soul Tender skyrockets through the roof in value. You're going to be looking to pick up Necromasses. You're going to be looking to pick up Talarian Terrors to make your monstrous war leeches huge. You were kind of planless, and now all of a sudden you have a plan, and I think your draft is probably fairly clear what your purpose is going forward from here. Yeah, and good news in case anyone else was wondering, pack one, pick 11, Rona does wheel as well. Yeah, and this deck ended up like a really nice streamlined blue-black deck. Only saw, in terms of the cost reduction creatures, one writhing necromass and I think no terrors in the packs. Um, So that was a bit of a bummer. Um, But three monstrous war leeches for the self-mill, a bunch of essence scatters, that's four of them. Those are all my two drops, basically. Um, And just a nice little late-game blue-black control deck here. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting draft. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be back for the meat of the episode. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is a product that I've started using every day to improve my energy and immune system. I take it first thing in the morning, and even though it looks like a green smoothie, it tastes like a vanilla protein shake. So what is this stuff? It's as easy as taking a multivitamin, Ben. One scoop of AG1 shaken with water, and you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, and focus. AG1 contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, while still tasting pretty good. With every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com LOL. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash LOL to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now, back to the show. All right, Ben. So, you know, I, I had to throw in some kind of kicker 
pun title in Dominaria United. So here's the kicker is the title here. And I did want to chat about kicker cards and not that we're going to talk about all whatever, 40 of them that there are, you know, but I, I did want to sort of chat about them in terms of buckets. I was trying to think about categories or ways to categorize kicker cards, because I think it's interesting when you come across them in draft to think about, well, what does this mean for my draft? Because some of them are like, I have, this is basically a secret gold card. And some of them are, you know, maybe even as far as unplayable or replacement level. And some of them are like, well, you know, I'm happy to just cast this and the kicker's bonus. Some of them are ones where you really want to splash the kicker if at all possible. Like, I think it's important to think about the kicker cards in different buckets, you know? Yes, I completely agree. So I, I threw together these three-ish categories and then replaceable being the third. So the, the the first one is secret gold cards, which I think is defined as must be able to kick in the deck, but not necessarily when casting, right? It's like okay to cast Banalish Sleeper as one and a white for a three one. But I think, I mean, for me, it's a secret gold card, but that's just probably my bias. I know that I know that it's just a two mana three one is good in the red white aggressive decks. But for me, I think it's it's a secret gold card. Well, if you're maximizing it, it needs to go in a white black deck. Yes. Yes, I think so. Um, and so there's definitely cards, you know, like a monstrous war leech. You don't have to kick it when you cast it necessarily, but you. I don't think you're ever playing it in a deck. That's probably not even base blue black, if I'm being honest. Like, I guess you could play it in black green self mill with like a hefty way to splash it. But I think ideally you either have a ton of soul tenders to support it or you have the the ability to splash it pretty easily. Next up is Urborg Repossession. This is the black bring a creature from your graveyard to your hand and then you can kick it for one in a green. And if you kick it, you get another permanent card and then you gain two life regardless when you cast it. This is something that Again, secret gold card in the sense of doesn't necessarily have to go in streamlined black green, but you have to be able to reliably kick it in your deck. So maybe you're, you know, heavy green, blue domain, and you've got like four or five black sources like you need to be able to reliably kick Urborg repossession. You're pretty unhappy casting it for a single black most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I think th- this is about as light as I would uh, attempt it in that that deck from the round table. So I had Urborg repossession in a just blue black deck and had a tangled islet. That's the green blue tap land mm-hmm. and a crystal grotto in the deck. Those are my only two ways to kick it. And that's probably about as, as slim as I would go on it. So you're like not treating it quite as a full splash because a full splash you would want three sources minimum i think so like a little little cheating on it but really like i really want to be able to kick that if at all possible yes and another great example is sprouting goblin this is one in a red for a two two it's got kicker of green and if you kick it you get to go search your library for a card that has a basic land type and then has the ability red tap sack a land draw a card you have to be able to not only play this in red green most likely red green base but you yeah. really want to reliably be able to cast it on curve. Like you want to reliably have access to both red and green on turn three, which essentially means it is a gold card. You, It's way less good in a green blue domain deck where you're just splashing the red side of it. You know what I mean? I had a um, a draft log review I was doing in a coaching session and we we're talking about this card of like it, it, it's almost a reward for being a domain deck, but has like sort of implications in the draft of like you feel like you have to pick it like it's a reason to draft the domain deck but it's not quite powerful enough for that, you know? Yes. It's in this weird space in that sense, but I I agree. Like you don't want to, Sprouting Goblin gets a lot worse as we'll talk about with Splashing later. gets a lot worse if you can't reliably play it on turn three. All right, that takes us to our next category, which is front side is playable on its own, but you're likely going to splash for ways to enable the kicker. So we we talked about Battling Mystic, I think, as an example of just two mana, two on flyer, I'm I'm happy with, but I'm I'm almost certainly going to play some way, probably not a basic mountain in my deck, but I'm most certainly going to try and get at least a dual land or grotto if it makes sense to be able to kick it or or mise the ability to kick it in the deck, you know? Yeah, the one thing I want to shout out is I think for Battling Mystic to make the cut, you need to be at least aggressive, right? You're not just throwing this randomly in a blue-black control deck, I don't think. Yeah, aggressive or your spells are cheap, which is likely to be aggressive, but I agree, like, you want the card to be in a spot kicked where you just get to draw two cards, right? If you've got a bunch of expensive things or a bunch of counter spells you're likely to want to be holding, I think this card is a lot worse. Yes. I think Phyrexian Missionary is a great example, right? You you just play two mana, two, three, lifelink, period. Always. But 
you're probably going to try and get, if you're not base white black or, you know, some sort of domain splashy deck, you're probably going to want some way to mize, you know, a way to kick it or two in your deck. Yes, this card is backbreaking. I recently drafted a deck with two of them and looping them <laughs> with sacrifice outlets is a dream. I got to tell you that the tweet I received from you about black white was just it was music to my ears made my weekend. I've been on a black white kick lately. What can I say? Yeah, look, it's better late than never. That's all I have to say. I think <laughs> I think tribute to Urborg is a great example. You know, we already sort of chatted about that. Obviously, like best in a blue black control shell, but I think also good as your cheap removal in a, you know, black green domain deck or whatever, a way to like not get run over by aggressive decks. And then, then in the late game, you're likely to be able to kick it. I think I would not, again, I would, I, I would, might maybe play this if like it really filled a, a hole in my black white deck without being able to kick it if i had a you know a high creature count black white deck but ideally i've got some way to kick this in my deck you know yes i think fires of victory similar category but yeah just for great sure. removal but obviously a two for one if you can kick it so you're gonna try to go out of your way a little bit to at least give yourselves outs to be able to kick it yeah and i think that that's a great the, the go out of your way scale is sort of what we're on here right of like how how much does this dictate what your mana base looks like or how much do you treat the kicker as part of the cost and we're sort of going from to a high degree to a medium degree and here's a low degree of kicker is just a bonus right so think about just the life gain off of herloon battle him or Telerian geyser sure those life gain effects are great um, in some instances, depending on your style of deck. But it is by no means, it's a bonus, right? You're still always playing three mana bounce a thing, draw a card in blue decks. You're still always playing three mana deal four damage in red decks. Right. Similarly, Phyrexian Espionage goes well in that category. Two and a blue draw two cards is just a good card in this format. And many times you're not able to spend the full five mana to kick Espionage anyway when you have it in a blue black deck. When it hits, it's great, but that's not the power of the card. The power of the card is divination. And you were on that early. I remember watching your stream maybe week one and, and folks were asking you about Espionage. You're like, oh, did, is Espionage blue black? You're like, no, divination is great. You always play divination. The kicker's a bonus. And I think that's a great way to think about the cards in this category. And I was surprised when making this list how few cards didn't make those three categories. Like I only have a handful of cards and they're replaceable. And you could even make a case for some of them that like, you know, joint exploration I think is replaceable, but like that's a cantripping spell for blue decks. Pixie Illusionist, that's a way to fix your mana in your like very aggressive domain decks. Aggressive meaning mana base, not aggressive in the strategy, <laughs> in the strategy of the deck, uh, I should say. Um, but very few cards. I've even I've played Shoulders Restoration when I've had you know I've had decks built entirely around Wing Mantle Chaplain, and then you know I don't get Eerie Soul Tender or whatever. Great, then I'm just going to play a way to recur it otherwise in Restoration. There's very few of these cards that are 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 strictly unplayable. You know? Yes, I agree, and I think the kicker cards are what make this format incredible. It, it, I think I think so too. I, I really think that's true. I think they knocked it out of the park with kicker existing in this always being an off color cost. You know, it really adds a layer of complexity to the draft. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of off color cards, let's chat a bit about building mana bases in DMU because we actually haven't really, and I think it's a big part of this format. We could probably devote an entire episode to building mana bases in this format specifically, but it would also probably be rehashing a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the show before. So you know, we, we've talked about building multicolor decks in formats specifically before from as recently as our back alleys of new Capenna episode 273 all the way back to OG Dominaria of building mana bases in limited which is episode 51 so you can certainly go to our, our backlogs and find episodes or you know if you have access to our show notes find show notes about uh, about building mana bases but we'll do a sort of like fast and, and loose for building mana bases for multicolor decks in general and then some DMU specific thoughts so what's going on here, Ben? First is, even if you are more than two colors, you need to have a two color base with ideally eight sources minimum of each. And so if you're not familiar with, you know, advanced mana bases or complex mana bases, sources means ways to produce that color. So like maybe you have six mountains in a red green deck, but then you also have green cards that let you search up basics or lands. So two of those green cards that let you search up lands in addition to six mountains would get you to eight sources. So like eight ways to access the cards that produce that color of mana. Cards that you're splashing need to be powerful enough to warp your mana base around or to just warp your mana base 
period. And there's sort of a lot of thoughts tied into that. One is that they should be cards you don't need to cast on curve. So uh, something, for example, you know, we just talked about Sprouting Goblin, for example, but Quirion Beast Caller, that's the one in a green rare. It's a 2-2. Whenever you cast a creature spell, you put a plus and plus one counter on it. And then when it dies, you distribute those plus and plus one counters among any number of creatures you control where X is the number of counters that was on Beast Caller when it died. I mean, that's a really really good card. You know what makes that card really good? Coming down on turn two. Coming down on turn two. When that card comes down on turn 10, when you go, yes, finally assembled. I've got this tapped green source. Now it's untapped. And now I'm playing my two mana two, two. No, that does not make up for the like, you know, it rotting in your hand or the, the, the strain on your mana base. So you really need to think about the cards being powerful enough when they come down and powerful enough off curve. And just sort of a general recipe for success if you're doing these multicolored decks, you know, especially if you're thinking pushing towards four and five color domain decks, the kind of recipe of things you need, you need bombs, which there are not tons of bombs in Dominar United, but there are a lot of good uncommons like you need reasons to want the game to go long and sometimes that can be as clear as you know you've got some of those premium uncommons and then you've got herborg repossessions and you're planning to you know rinse and repeat those premium uncommons that you have that is enough of a reason in this format but you want some sort of incentive whether that be bombs or great cards you need removal to keep you alive against the aggressive decks that are going to be trying to pressure you and then you also need defensive speed so just bodies on the two and three drops of your curve that you can cast planning to block with or planning to trade with your opponent's early drops. And then finally, you need ways to two for one, ways to pull ahead after you've you know traded cards, you've blocked, you've used your cheap removal spells. You want cards like Phyrexian Espionage that are going to pull you ahead or maybe even a Jota's Codex that's going to let you just see more raw cards than your opponent. And then for DMU specifically, the dual lands add a whole other layer of dimension to drafting and pick orders. So for non-domain decks, you want to think about cards you already have, that you've drafted already, that you would really like to be able to kick if possible, or cards you're likely to want to be able to kick. So you know if you have some of the cards that we've mentioned or that are on this list that folks who have access to our show notes can see in, in full. But you know if you have kicker cards that you've drafted already, you have a sense of mm, where do these fall in terms of got to be able to kick it, would be nice if I could kick it, is a bonus, whatever. But you want to think about those lands for the cards you've drafted, like like an espionage or like a tribute to Herborg. I think repossession is a big one. Like when I get that, I really want to be sure that I can kick that. So any green land, you know, the black green land specifically, skyrockets in value for me there. Or you could even think about cards or colors you're likely to want to splash. You know, if I'm you know, when I was on my Mario kick in the first few weeks, when I was starting black white, I was snapping up red black and red white lands because I was so likely to, oh, if I see a Lagamos, I'm going to want to be able to splash that, you know? Well, and that's a big one. And that goes back to to be able to do that, you have to be able to know where you're likely to end up and what cards you're likely to value with where you end up. And specifically in those late game decks with Urborg Repossession, you know, if you're green blue and you're wanting to play to the late game, you know you're going to want to splash Urborg Repossession. So picking up those black duels or green cards that are going to let you search up a swamp to cast your Urborg Repossession is just huge. Having an idea of what you expect your deck to look like and what splash needs you're likely to have even before you have those off-color kicker cards is so important during the draft. There are often, and we might even chat about this on the wheel, but there are often picks that feel throwaway. You know, one of the things I I sort of like to make fun of uh, drafters for doing is like, you know, you get to pick 11 and there's three cards that you have no chance of making your deck. And every drafter like has this moment of paralysis where they're like, (laughs) which of these unplayable cards should I take? But honestly, in DMU, there, when you get to lands as choices, there are sometimes spots where you're like, well, how was I supposed to know I was supposed to take the blue-red land there? That you were on track to be, I don't know, blue-black, and what if I saw Fires of Victory? Obviously, that's an uncommon, but like, it's a good card to be able to splash, and you that may be the difference of I can actually include this in my deck at no cost to my mana base or not. Yeah, I think if generally my rule of thumb is if a pack is largely empty for me and there is a land there, even if I don't see the use case for that land currently, I default towards taking the land in that spot. So that's taking lands in a general sense for just like, you know, two color decks with a a light splash or a medium splash. What about for domain decks? Well, you want green duels, and those are a huge priority because in an ideal world, I think in domain decks, almost all of your lands touch one of your base two colors so that they mitigate the impact that your, you know, dual lands have on your non 
base color. So you really want to, again, have those eight sources minimum, preferably up towards nine or 10. Certainly if you have like one premium base color, like green, that's responsible for a lot of the fixing. And then there is randomly cases where, you know, if you have the cards that let you search up a card with a basic land type, like if you're red, green, and you have a sprouting goblin, it can be really valuable to include like a double off color tap land. And those are more like in the red, green beatdown decks where you're really trying to enable domain quickly to put the hurting on your opponent. Right. So when you're trying to get your Gaia's Mites up to plus four, plus four, plus five, plus five as quickly as possible. But I do think in general, you want your dual lands to touch your base colors double off color dual lands i think are are less optimal because that's effectively a colorless land in your deck for um your your main cards that you're going to be casting right so either you have ways to search them up and you want exactly one or you don't have ways to search them up and you're unlikely to include them right because i think you're more likely to have cards like the Weather Seed Treaty or in a pinch, Scout the Wilderness, where you can search up a basic land specifically. And so you have to have slots available for those lands, right? So if you're like trying to count Scout the Wilderness and Weather Seed Treaty as red sources in your deck, you got to put a mountain in your deck. And so that really is going to take up those spots that you might like to allocate more for, ooh, I'm blue green, but I want to play this red white dual land. Well, you really can't because you need to put both a mountain and a plains in your deck. Right. And then there's there's shades of domain decks also, right? Like there's domain mm-hmm. decks that really want to get to five colors. And then there's just like green black domain decks that are playing some domain cards, but are more late game control decks that are warped around Urborg repossession and just knowing they're going to win the late game. So being able to identify where you are on the scale of wanting to get to all five colors as you're drafting is also very important. Are there any domain cards that you have shortcutted in your head because you've like played them in five color domains so much that you always expect their effect to be for the full five and when they're not, you're confused? Well, chapter three of Weatherseed Treaty, I'm always like, What's this puny 4-4 doing? <laughs> Where's my 6-6 six, six trampling sapling? But I do think there are you know, sort of categories like the kicker cards. There are categories of domain cards of how important is it? Let's say I've just got a streamlined blue-green deck and maybe I'm splashing some, you know, a few red removal spells or something. But I've got a lot of cards that say domain. How much do I want to stretch my mana base? You know, if I have a Niel, the, the blue-green 2-4 flyer that when it connects, if you have full five domain... You get to draw a card of the top five. Well, that's a huge incentive for me to try to get to full five colors consistently. You already talked about red-green aggro as a deck in general because it's taking advantage of the Gaia's Mites. You know, that's an, the Weather Seed Treaty Chapter 3. That's another deck that really wants you to be able to get to domain four or five as consistently as possible. Yes. Is your game plan Myria's Outriders? You know, do you have a, a Jota's Codex? If you have Codex, how happy are you to activate that for three mana? pretty unhappy two mana pretty unhappy i really want that in the one or ideally zero spot you know herd migration i don't want that for just three three threes i want four or ideally five so you really want to think about not only the card you're trying to cast but the domain you're trying to enable when building these mana bases yes and i think that is difficult to give advice for because each one is its own little unique snowflake so the the best thing we can try to encourage you to do is have two base colors minimum of eight sources for those two base colors and then splash lands. You're almost splashing lands in some of the domain decks as appropriately as you can without hurting the base core of your mana base. Right, exactly. All right, that takes us on to our next grab bed topic, which is the wheel. So we already saw in the round table that, you know, things like Monstrous War Leech can wheel. And I think one of the coolest things about this format is you should always be trying to get information on the wheel in any format. But in this format specifically, Because of those off-color kicker cards, there are so many archetype-specific cards that you can get tons of information from the wheel about what archetypes are open or sometimes red herrings if you're drafting with a pod (laughs) that doesn't know what you're doing. But I think you should be trying to glean information from the wheel. Yeah, for sure. I think in broad strokes, if we're talking about cards that are big signals on the wheel, you should be looking for C plus type cards that go in specific decks. So and I think one of the reasons I'm on such a big black white kick is that when cards like Banalish Sleeper, that's the three one that has the kicker black or Phyrexian Warhorse, the three three with kicker white, when those type cards wheel, it's very apparent, I think, that white black is open or 
your pod just doesn't know how to draft white black decks because both of those cards are premium in black white decks. And there's tons of cards that you could list in addition to those that go in other two color decks that are only good in their two color deck. And I think if you see those cards on the wheel, you should clock this two color archetype is probably open. And that doesn't necessarily mean jumping ship for them, right? But I I think ideally you're sort of tracking that early in the draft before the wheel happens. I think you're ideally tracking those cards so that when the wheel does come around, that these aren't surprises to you necessarily. That You're like, ooh, I, I thought that this might wheel and it did, or I thought this might wheel and it didn't, or I'm surprised that this wheeled. That doesn't necessarily mean you jump ship and you know abandon your whatever, your blue red start for a banalish sleeper pick nine. That's not what we're saying. But you know, when you're maybe deciding between am I supposed to be white red or white blue or white black and then you see the sleeper well boy howdy is that a signal right and even something like Kelvin strike team or Geechee yeah. like if you're let's say you have this this Baird start to a draft and you're really expecting to wheel a Kelvin strike team and it doesn't that almost certainly means that there's another red white drafter at the table because that card is only good in red white or, you know, you're blue and you're trying to decide if you're a blue red tempo aggro or blue black control and you wheel a Gitu amplifier. That's a huge signal that blue red aggro is open and that you should steer towards that. And if it doesn't wheel, you better believe I'm if I have the option to steering away from blue red. Yeah, yeah. Or at the very least expecting a bumpy ride <laughs> in the next couple packs. But I agree. I think it's it's really important to have that information in pack one, because what it can at the very least do is prevent train wrecks. Yes. Uh-huh. And I think also you're going to get this information on the wheel. And despite knowing that something's open on the wheel, you won't always have had an option to get into it, right? This is one of my pet peeves when I'm making videos mm. or with Twitch chat. Like people are like, well, the wheel happened and blue red is obviously open. Yeah, sure. I can see that too. But like the question is, did we have an avenue where we could have set ourselves up to take an advantage of that? And the answer isn't always going to be yes, we could have drafted this thing. Sometimes you just based on the power of the cards you saw had to start in white. And then there was never a world where you could have possibly ended up in blue red, despite it being open. And I think it's really important to understand that if you want to be a better drafter, because it's so easy to beat yourself up you know, when you're drafting and it's super obvious that blue black is open in packs two and packs three, you know, try to go back and see in pack one, was there a way that I could have set myself up to leave that as a possible path I could have taken in this draft? And sometimes the answer is just no. And that's okay. Those are the best drafts to review in my mind, because they're the ones, especially early in a format, they're the ones that can really help your pick order. They can just let you know, because sometimes the answer will be what Ben said, which is like, I think if I go back, I'm still taking, you know, I'm taking blue card, blue card, green card, blue, green card, green card. And then it's so hard for me to figure out that red, white was open. I don't know how I was supposed to get into that deck in pack one. But sometimes you'll go, oh, I tunnel vision so hard. And I took this like replacement level green card that ended up in my sideboard anyway over the Kelden strike team. And I maybe should start to bump that up in my pick order, or at least have, make sure I'm highlighting that card in packs when I see it and wondering if it's above replacement, that sort of thing. So we're going to take a look at one draft here. We're going to hop in on pack one, pick 10. Woo. And so you have quite a steamy mess here. This is pack one, pick 10. You have as white cards, Phyrexian Missionary, Argybian Cavalier. As black cards, Eerie Soul Tender, Shadow Prophecy. You've got a random Sunbathing Rootwalla. And then blue cards, you have Talus Lookout, Talarian Terror and a Vahar, Vidalian, Desecrator, and then you have one land in a Sunlit Marsh. So you are looking for some direction here. I think it is most likely based on the order that you took cards that you're going to either be white-black or you could maybe be white-red because pack one, pick 10, you see a heroic charge on the wheel here. And this card wheeling, I think, is a signal that white go-wide decks are open. And maybe we're not going to be white-black or white-red specifically, but if we end up white-black go-wide, you can... I think splash red certainly on heroic charge and to just be aware in messy drafts like this, you know, these archetype specific cards that you see on the wheel, you should be clocking that and using it to help you find, you know, just as a, okay, I'm noting this, this is a potential avenue that's open. I'm going to store that information in my brain for the future as I'm trying to find a path that's going to work for me in this draft. Love it. Heroic charge specifically is such an interesting card to me. It's a, it's an effect that we see. I'm almost, you know, to a T, every limited format has an effect like that. I consistently underrate it. And I, I don't know how to fix that in my brain, but it's a card that 
I know is good. I recognize as good in uh, opposing decks that I face. <laughs> That's the thing, right? <laughs> but I just like, I never, maybe it's that I don't set myself up to draft decks like that. But that card specifically, like th- those cards that are very good in one quadrant, you know? But that's the quadrant your deck ends up in so often. So obviously it's good. It's just it's hard for me to wrap my head around those cards. Well, and I think that boils back to earlier that draft where you start Baird Baird. Yeah. Like if you're starting that start, I think you need to be willing to value (laughs) heroic charge and you need to be willing to, you know, have a little faith even on the packs where you don't see, you know, Archivian Cavaliers and take up the shields. Yeah. But you still can draft a functional red, white, go wide deck where heroic charge is going to be great. I think you're right. Think you're right. Uh, that makes me think about the archetypes in this format. Which, and I have a question for you, Ben. Do you think this is the most wide open format we've ever seen? You know, we've we've heralded Eldraine as being, you know, perhaps one of that. That you know, you had all all ten color pairs plus all the monocolor decks. I feel like there might be more in this format. I mean, there's not monocolor decks, but there's so many different iterations. Well, it depends on which end of the spectrum you're on. You're either on like team, there's 20 to 25 decks, or you're on team, there are four or five decks that all essentially look the same, but are slight variations of each other. Personally, I am on team 20 to 25 decks, but I think even more than archetypes, the coolest thing about this format is that we have build arounds at common. And I think that is largely the first time that has ever happened. Like build arounds like this that puts you in such specific directions is really cool. Yeah, I I think this would be the actual goat for me if there were better rares. And I know, like, I'm not talking about bomb rares, but I'm just talking about like, I'm really have to, to flex that muscle that I like to flex in limited. This brings maybe to, to talk about Yosha declares war, war for a second on the podcast to, to flex a muscle <laughs> yes, that please, I let's devote more time to this card. Get out of here. But I think that, you know, you know, who's on team Yosha declares war. Is I know, SC. I know, I know. <laughs> um, but just that I really like cards that change my pick order. And one of the things that this format doesn't need is that because it, it's all pick orders in flux as we've talked about but i really like that that feeling of ooh, this card i'm gonna open you know like joda or radadrabic but those aren't that good that i'm like taking these cards and trying to build around you know when we did our uh build around and find out episode for alchemy horizons you kept having me be like all right well what's the letter grade here build around what and these are all like build around c's you know, right. or or worse sometimes. And so I do wish there were some more like, oh, if you build around this, like the Dance of the Mance of the World from yes. Eldraine, like those fun niche rares that actually were good. Wish we had some more of those. And I think then this would be the goat for me. Yes, like rares that spawn their own unique archetypes when you see that rare. Yes, exactly. But aren't just like busto busto on their own. Yes, I agree. That would be a huge perk for this format. But there's just so much, right? There's like, there I think literally are all 10 color pairs. And, and some of those color pairs mean different things. You know, the green decks all sort of mean a domain identity, I would say. Other than, I have seen some hotness on Twitter. I was trying to find it. I thought it was one of the Draft Lab guys, but I, I don't think it was. But someone tweeted out, and maybe me mentioning this, we'll, we'll be able to find it. But someone tweeted out that I think they forced green-white aggro in both of their day two arena open drafts. Like they're just like doing the green white go wide tokens with Queen Allen all and such. That is news to me. I have completely <laughs> completely missed this development if this is indeed a development on the format, and I spend way too much time on Twitter. That's true. That's true. So, you know, I think for a while I was saying that green, white and red, black were probably the two color pairs that I hope to not end up in. But I've drafted quite a bit of red, black since then, actually. And I think it's got multiple flavors. I think you can do a grindy red, black deck that's more base black and has red removal. I think you can do a red, black aggro deck if you get the Lagamos and the, uh, what is it, Garnas of the world. Um, But I, I just think that all the color pairs are viable. Yes, I do agree with that. I think there are certainly colors that come together more easily or more commonly, but any of them work. And and the, as you mentioned, the, the build arounds at common, I think Talarian Terror are probably the best of the bunch in my mind. Like that is, it's just so much of what Blue wants to do and that Blue so successfully supports that. But, you know, Writhing Necromass, I think exists to, to an extent, all of the cost reduction commons exist. I even have stuff like Miria's Outrider and Urborg repossession as like, they're kind of build arounds in and of themselves. They're game plans in and of themselves. Yeah, which is wild in this format that Mary's Outrider is 
depending on what you're doing or what you expect to do, either the card that your deck wants the most or something you're not remotely interested in. Obviously, there's the walls deck and that either can be with Wingmantle Chaplain and a bunch of ways to tutor it up. Or it can be, you know, I've drafted plenty of Sultai or Mardu walls decks built around the Blight Pile and Coral Colony. I think the other, you know, uncommons that uh, that are payoffs, they're certainly not as close to as powerful as Chaplain, but they can get the job done as well. I've definitely milled people out or killed them with blight piles before. 100%. All right. The last thing we're going to quickly touch on here before we go is just your pick orders dictating what archetypes you're likely to end up in and yeah. why that's such an important concept. And we kind of talked about it already a couple times in the episode, but I just want to really clearly lay out. I think the order that you value the cards in this format says so much about what archetypes you're hoping to end up in. And I think if you don't have that mentality about it, First of all, you are losing equity when you draft this format. I think that is true. But I think in addition to that, when you're discussing things with other people, it's very important to try to have, like, put yourself in their shoes, right? So there's been a a huge discussion in the Lords of Limited uh, recent episodes discussion about three black removal spells. What order you value them in, like cut down and tribute to Urborg and extinguish the light. And we've had very good players putting them in wildly different orders with like greater than signs between different (laughs) cards in different orders, like multiple good players weighing in with very different takes. And the thing that made me a little sad in watching this discussion was I was like, this is the, this is what we've been trying to say, right? This was the whole point is that you all can be right. Yes. And I don't know that that's necessarily true in a lot of formats, but I really do feel that that's true in this format or that if you're wrong, The amount of equity that you're giving up is so minimal as long as you have a plan or an intended reasoning behind your pick that it just really doesn't matter that much. What's interesting is trying, like, I think that that point you made about trying to put yourself in that person's shoes of like, okay, I know this about myself and my preferences or the decks I'm having success with. And the reason that I value card X over Y over Z. But now I'm looking at this player who says they value Z over Y over X. What does that mean about what they're drafting? Do they stream? Maybe I'll, I'll check out their stream and see what decks they draft or you know, search them in the Discord and see what trophy decks they've posted. And oh, wow, that that's the makeup of those decks. There's a lot to learn from that. It just doesn't necessarily mean like one of you has to emerge from the arena being right or wrong, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, and I think the other thing is, I'm personally on team, there's 20 or 25 decks in this format. And I think the format, if you don't have an end in mind, is so overwhelming and you're so likely to end up in a steamy mess in the draft that the format encourages you to find an area where you feel comfortable and then to take cards that tend to lead you towards that area. I think that is something that just naturally happens in the format because there's so many different corners to explore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't take Baird Baird if you're not likely to end up in red white. Is what I, that's what I'm hearing you say to me right now. I mean, I'm just not saying that, but that is a good jab had yeah, I intended yeah. it that way. Yeah. But I mean, there's just so many things, like just a couple examples to rattle off here, especially this happens when you're starting the draft with weak packs, like something early on in the draft, you're faced maybe even pack one, pick one with a decision of something like Urborg Repossession versus a card like Take Up the Shield or Argivian Cavalier. There are going to be people that argue to the death that you should take (laughs) Urborg Repossession. But if you're not likely to end up in one of those salty grindy decks and you love white decks, it makes way more sense to take Take Up the Shield or Argivian Cavalier over an Urborg Repossession pack one, pick one. But if you think Urborg Repossession is premium and you're always going to steer your drafts to end up in these three or four color late game grind decks. Absolutely, you should be taking your board repossession over those white cards. But I don't think either one is right or wrong. You just have to draft knowing what those cards mean for you when you pick each one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even something as simple as pack one, pick one terror versus espionage or essence scatter or Telerian geyser, right? Some people are on team terror as the best blue common. And I think that's where I am personally, because I like drafting the blue decks in such a way as to maximize Telerian terror. But if you take those other cards over Telerian terror, those other cards go in a wider variety of archetypes. You know what I mean? Like you can take for and espionage, still have outs to see terror, but it's also going to be great in your Sultai grind deck with Urborg repossession. Whereas if you take terror, you're much more on a, I want to be blue and this is going to be my deck. 
Well, even thinking about a card like Essence Scatter, it's like, okay, well, what kind of, like, Essence Scatter isn't going to be at its best in the blue-based tempo decks. That's honestly where Telerian Terror is best, because you're, like, firing off the cheap spells and then getting your Telerian Terror for cheap as well. Whereas, like, something like Timely Interference might be better in a blue-red tempo deck than something like Essence Scatter. There's just so many... Like, where does the, you know, just thinking about the end from as early as pack one, pick one is so important. Right. And that's why people are going to have wildly different pick orders or be arguing about cards because they think they have different ends in mind. Like, they think X is true about the format and therefore they're drafting in such a way as to end up in X as much as possible. Yeah. It's like taking a blue red land and going, well, maybe I'll end up in five color squigglies. <laughs> So I think last piece of advice to leave you with when you're deciding between close picks, you need to know why you're taking the card you decided to take and what your plan is from there going forward, like the types of cards you're hoping to see or the types of cards you would like to pick in the future based on the card you just took. You have to have the end in mind. Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts before we go? I mean, it's this is such a fun format to talk about because you can have such wildly different takes and you don't have to feel like you have to come away from the conversation with I was right or I was wrong. Yes. I just think this format teaches you so much how to be a better drafter. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to TCGplayer.com for sponsoring this podcast. Please head on over there for any and all purchases that you're making via the link in the show notes or on our website to let them know we sent you over there. We would really appreciate it. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. 